You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Self-injury, deliberately causing physical harm to oneself as a way of dealing with emotions or situations, is mentioned in the current Diagnostic and Statistical Manual only as a symptom of borderline personality disorder, stereotypic movement disorder, and factitious disorders. Prevalence rates of self-injury are high, and it is dangerous. But there has been little research on the behavior, and it is therefore not well understood. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Cambridge, Massachusetts, is my guest, Dr. Matthew Nock, Director of the Laboratory of Clinical and Developmental Research in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. Welcome, Dr. Nock. Hello, and thanks for having me. Dr. Nock, can you please describe self-injury for us? Sure. Non-suicidal self-injury, which is one of the behaviors that we spend a lot of our time studying, refers to, as you mentioned, direct, deliberate destruction of body tissue Importantly, in the absence of any intent to die, it usually takes a form of behavior such as skin cutting or burning, picking at the skin, or inserting objects under the skin. And it becomes addictive, doesn't it? Uh, Its addictive properties are something that scientists are debating, but it is certainly a repetitive behavior. Most people who make it into our studies or clinics, anyway, engage in the behavior anywhere from two to five times per day. So we have people who come in running pretty much the range, episodes of self-injury to several hundred or thousand. Can you talk about how that cycle occurs? Great question, and I think that's the the $60,000 question, so to speak, and and largely the focus of our work is trying to understand what maintains non-suicidal self-injury, so why do people continue to engage in this behavior? What people tell us, and we've done systematic studies asking adolescents and adults just that, why do you engage in this behavior? The responses fall into four main categories, four main functions, if you will, that are served by this behavior. And these differ along two dichotomous dimensions, whether the functions are internal or social, and whether reinforcement for the behavior is positive or negative, so to speak. So I'll give you some examples. First, the main reason people give is that self-injury serves an internal negative reinforcement function. That is, it gets rid of or distracts from bad or aversive thoughts or feelings. And probably the most common thing that one would hear um, as a clinician or as a researcher in this area is someone saying they had really bad, intolerable thoughts or feelings, whether they're bad memories or just feeling upset or anxious, they engage in self-injury, and somehow, and the mechanism is unclear right now, those bad thoughts and feelings go away. So it's sort of an internal negative reinforcing behavior. And that relief is rewarding. Exactly. So um, negatively reinforcing, meaning there's some aversive stimulus, and through self-injury, that is gone. Now, how that works, we don't know. Some, Some leading theories are simple from pain demands attention, the person is distracted from whatever was bothering them before, and they're focused specifically on the self-injury. So just by simple distraction, they feel better. More complex and somewhat unexplored theories have to do with the release of endorphins. People engage in self-injury. The body, as a protective mechanism, releases endorphins, um, and this gives a person, uh, not only removes their pain, but, but gives them a warm, fuzzy feeling, so to speak, and they're reinforced that way. And, and some argue that this is how self-injury might become addictive this natural opiate process. Right. You mentioned that self-injury is not a suicidal behavior, but what is the relationship between self-injury and suicide? This is another great question, sort of a tricky one. Self-injury is, as we discussed, non-suicidal by nature. However, a lot of folks who engage in non-suicidal self-injury also make suicide attempts. About half to three-quarters make a suicide attempt at some point in their life, and more than half engage in multiple suicide attempts. So we think of them as overlapping but distinct behaviors. A lot of those who do one do the other, but in any one instance, the person's intent, whether to die or not, we think is very important. Tell us about who exhibits this type of self-injurious 
thoughts or behaviors, what populations are at highest risk? In terms of overall prevalence rates, we don't have these because questions about self-injury haven't been included in large epidemiologic surveys. We know, though, that about 8% of all middle school students, 15 to 20% of high school and college students engage in the behavior. Rates are only about, they're much lower among adult samples. So it seems as though adolescents, young adults are at, at higher risk based on the data we have right now. People with an Axis one psychiatric disorder and Axis two psychiatric disorder are going to be at highest risk. And those with self-injury have the full gamut of Axis one disorders. Among those who self-injure, a large percentage have what we call internalizing disorders like depression, anxiety, but a lot also have externalizing disorders, conduct problems like conduct disorder, oppositional defiance disorder. The majority have alcohol or substance use problems. In terms of Axis two, around half of people who engage in self-injury meet criteria for borderline personality disorder, but a significant minority meet criteria for other personality disorders as well, most often in our work, avoidant personality disorder or paranoid personality disorder. What about male versus female? Male versus female is also something that's still being debated. The majority of large surveys in this area find that there's no difference between boys and girls or or men and women in terms of percentage of those engaging in self-injury. Some studies, however, have found that women more than men engage in self-injury. So this is still being a little bit debated, and there's some differences in studies. Some of the difference may be due to the fact that a lot of these studies are done among clinical samples where we see higher proportions of women than men. So this may be slanting the findings a little bit. But in large school-based or community-based surveys, the rates are are most often equivalent between boys and girls, which is surprising to a lot of us. Dr. Nock, in your recent paper in the American Journal of Psychiatry, you used a new test comparing responses of people who had recently engaged in self-injurious behavior to those who had not and found significant differences in the responses of those two groups. In the study, you used an implicit association test to assess self-injury. Why not just ask patients if they have self-injurious impulses? Great question. We do ask directly, but what we're doing is testing out more indirect ways of identifying those at risk for self-injury and predicting who's most likely to engage in these behaviors in the future. The reason this is so important with people who engage in self-injury is that very often people who engage in this behavior are motivated to deny or conceal this behavior, as I think many clinicians working with these populations would know. People don't want to be discovered. People often self-injure in places where they're unlikely to be discovered, such as inner thighs, chest, back, legs and will wear a long sleeve and bracelet to to hide this. And also, people often don't want to be stopped from engaging in the behavior, don't want to be hospitalized against their will, will deny wanting to engage in the behavior in order to be released from hospital settings. So there's really, I think, an important need for methods of measuring self-injurious thoughts and predicting them in a way that doesn't rely on self-report. How did you decide to use the implicit association test, which is often used to detect bias in social and political spheres as part of your assessment for self-injury? We thought that this was a tool that was very well suited for clinical purposes. It's, as you mentioned, largely been used to look at social beliefs, such as prejudice, racial bias, bias against the elderly or people who are obese. It's reliable. It's fast. It's accurate. It's been shown to be resistant to attempts to fake good, so to speak. So we thought it was very well suited for for clinical purposes. And we're doing this work in collaboration with one of the developers of the IAT, Mazarin Banaji, who is one of my colleagues here in the Department of Psychology at Harvard. So for both theoretical and practical reasons, it was a great match for our work. The study focused on adolescents between ages 12 and 19. Tell us about how you selected the subjects and how the study was conducted. It was conducted in the Department of Psychology here at Harvard out of my behavioral research lab. And we essentially just posted flyers at local psychiatric and psychological clinics, both inpatient and outpatient settings, and also around the community and on electronic bulletin boards. 
and we're able to recruit a fairly large sample of adolescents and young adults to come to our lab for what ended up being, for this particular study, about a one-hour, one to two-hour study where we interviewed them, collected questionnaire data, and also had them complete this brief computerized test. And what were the results of the study? The results were that we found, in my view, surprisingly large, quite remarkable differences between self-injurers and non-injurers implicit association tests. And this is, as far as I know, the first evidence behavioral, a behavioral test that can identify self-injurious thoughts. So those who engaged recently in non-suicidal self-injury were much faster on this reaction time test, which measures a person's reaction time in milliseconds, when asked to pair self-injury with the self or self-injury with being a good thing relative to those who don't engage in self-injury. So this turned out to be a very strong predictive tool. Very strong predictive tool in terms of who's, in terms of current groups. Statistically, we're able to predict pretty well who's a self-injurer and who's not, so detection. In terms of prediction, we're currently carrying out that work, which is the next step, which is how well will this tool perform at predicting prospectively who's likely to engage in self-injury in the future. In the meantime, what signs should a family practitioner be alert for if he or she suspects cutting or other self-injurious behaviors? Is there a telltale sign, or what should they be looking for? It's a really difficult thing, I think, to predict Given the heterogeneity of people who engage in self-injury, there's no one diagnosis, there's no one warning sign, I think, that would predict the behavior. I think the best way to predict it would be to look for signs of self-injury on the skin or lots of talking or writing about self-injury. If they do suspect that a patient is cutting or self-injuring in some way, what guidance can they offer? In terms of assessment, for, for clinicians or for mental health workers in the school, there are several structured assessment tools that can be used to identify the presence of self-injurious thoughts and behaviors, the functions that may be served by these, and lots of other questions that could guide assessment and treatment. We have some of these tools available on our website, and they're freely downloadable. Beyond this, I think getting a person into treatment, if indicated, and really understanding, as we discussed earlier, the function of the behavior or why a person is engaging this behavior, I think is a great way to really inform treatment. Okay. Would you like to mention the website? Sure. It is www.wjh.harvard.com. Dot edu forward slash tilde n-o-c-k forward slash knock lab. Okay. This is going to be valuable advice, I think, for our clinicians out there. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Matthew Knock, Director of the Laboratory of Clinical and Developmental Research in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Knock. Thanks so much for having me. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>